don't have anyone online, so I'm going to end this WebEx meeting. If in the future you need to do that, let me know. We can continue that. But for now, we don't. So we are in Luke chapter 20. We'll be beginning in verse 41. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of these, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, we come now and we want to hear you. We want to hear your word and we ask that you would work in us. Lord, that you would give us a love like you have for people. That you would give us a love not for ourselves, but that reaches out, that sacrifices, that gives, that ultimately is a picture of your son. Lord, even now as we hear this, would you call forth new faith? Would you lead us to repentance where we need and would you bring forth joy as we realize your forgiveness? In your son's name we pray. Amen. What comes to your mind when you hear the word religion? Some hear it and want to sing, give me that old time religion. Others want nothing to do with it. Sometimes even Christians will say, I'm not in a religion, I'm in a relationship, as though those things are distinct. Some hear of church and they have warm memories of their childhood. Others hear of church and have horrible memories of their childhood. A growing number of people in the U.S. and the West want to clearly distance themselves from religion, but they still want to have an idea of spirituality. And so you can now identify someone who's spiritual, but not religious. One professor described this as spiritual, but not religious, became a nice category that said, I'm not some kind of cold-hearted atheist, but I'm also not some kind of moralizing prudish person either. I'm nice, I'm friendly and spiritual, but not religious. So here, being part of religion is seen as being a moralizing, self-righteous, prudish person. Well, those who claim that, who claim to be, well, look, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That's growing. It's 20% of our population. If you look at people 30 to 49, it's up to 38%. You know, these people haven't abandoned God. They still believe in God. They still pray. They meditate. They contemplate. They talk of the spiritual peace they have in their lives. They have an awe for the universe, and many even respect Jesus. And perhaps you're here, and you agree with many of these sentiments. Well, today, we're going to see that in many ways, Jesus agrees. In many ways, he looks at religion and he says, that is cold, that is harsh, that is wrong. And yet, as Jesus also does, he's going to say, but let me turn and challenge you as well. Because it's not just reject all of this, it's also some things in which we need to be challenged. 
You know, we can't fit Jesus into our mold so that he is affirming everything we say. We need to be molded into him so that we're living and acting like he is. And part of that mold is a clear awareness of the dangers of fake spirituality. So Jesus this morning, he's going to give us three things. He's going to give us instruction. He's going to give us a warning. And he's going to give us an example of fake spirituality. First, in verses 41 through 44, we see Jesus' instruction, that we need to believe certain things. And Jesus here, if you remember the context, has been responding to the questions of the religious leaders. This, he's in his last week. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and they've been bringing up all these questions to trip him up. And now Jesus turns the tables. Their questions are done, and he asks questions of them. And he asks them this question, how can the Messiah, that's the meaning of Christ, how can the Messiah be the son of David? And at first they probably, well, that's not that hard. But then he presses home. What is he referring to here? Well, he's talking about David, the king of Israel, and that God had promised him an everlasting kingdom. But then Jesus drives the question home because he says, but in Psalm 10, 1, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in other words, Psalm 110 is saying that God said to David's Lord, sit in my right hand. Well, the right hand, as you know, is the position of honor and power. And David's Lord, who God honored more than anyone else, with the position of honor and power, is somehow someone that David calls his son and yet his Lord. So how could all of this fit together? That is what David's asking. How could he be his son and yet be his Lord, how could the father who normally is supposed to get the honor be honoring the son? And these questions leave the religious leaders silent. They're not sure what to say. You know, the psalm is clear that the Messiah is also David's son and also someone with a unique authority, unique rule. He's at God's right hand, but they can't figure out why. And you might be inclined to go, well, he's talking about Solomon because Solomon was made king. Before David died, and David, on one level, called him Lord. And yet, Solomon was never put this right hand of God the Father, and clearly many of the prophecies of the Messiah are not fulfilled in him. And so Psalm 110 leaves it open-ended. Who is this? And Jesus even leaves it open-ended. He doesn't answer the question here. But we know the rest of the story, that it doesn't stay unended. Because in a few days, a couple of nights, we might even say, they arrest Jesus. And notice what it says. Flip over just a page or two in your Bible to Luke 22, beginning in verse 66. Because they're going to question him, and this exact same issue is going to come up. Luke 22:66. it says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's what Jesus just said was the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And Jesus is claiming, I am that one who is at the right hand. And they didn't go, huh, we don't understand what he's saying. Because notice what it says next. So then they all said, are you the Son of God then? They understood the implication. They understood that Jesus was saying, I am the one who is David's son, but I'm not just David's son. I'm not just the Messiah. I am God's 
son. And so to summarize this, he's, they, Jesus is asking them, he's trying to help them see. Look, if you read Psalm 110, what is this person that is talking about? And he's saying that person is God's son and David's son. So David calls him Lord. He's both man and God. And Jesus is wanting them to realize, look, if you scribes, if you Pharisees, if you religious leaders understood this, you would no longer come trying to arrest me, to trap me. You'd come submitting to me. And they don't get it. Even the disciples probably don't fully grasp it, though they will. In Peter's famous sermon in Acts 2, he quotes Psalm 110, making this connection. They came to see that Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was not just a Jew. Jesus was also the Son of God. In a unique way, he is both God and man. You know, he was God, and he became man so that he might live for us, so that he might die for us. He might restore the kingdom of David, an everlasting kingdom. And then he did. He conquered sin and death at the cross. And now he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father as it proclaimed until all his enemies are made his footstool. And so the challenge to them then and to us now is we can bow now joyfully, rejoicing in him, or we can be made his footstool. But Jesus begins his critique, though, by showing an important aspect of true spirituality. And that is that there are certain things that must be believed. Now, Christianity does not claim to be the source of all truth, in the sense that you can go get a genetics book and learn a lot more about genetics than you would from the Bible. Or you can go study architectural designs. Or you could pick up books on parenting. Or we could limit, talk about many topics in which you would learn a lot more from other books than the Bible. And yet the Bible claims to be the foundational truth upon which all of those other ones are built. And that there are foundational beliefs that you must believe to have a spirituality that honors God. You know, spirituality has to flow with what the Spirit of God has already said. The Spirit of God has already said in His Word that the Messiah was going to be the one who came who was God's Son and David's Son. And so a true spirituality is what is aligned with the Spirit of God's revelation. And thus, we can't just have a generic idea of God. Well, yes, I believe in God. Well, what's God like? Well, I don't know. He, she, it, whatever is there. And I just kind of worship them, he, whatever. No, Jesus is showing true spirituality has some things that have to believe. The word God has specific content to it. However, this might be making you a little nervous because isn't it these clear doctrinal beliefs, these sharp edges, you might say, what cause problems in our world? Isn't it religions that have exclusive claims to the truth, what has led to wars and conflict and animosity? And the answer is, yes, it has. We don't need to deny that fact, but we need to think about that assumption. What is, it, what is happening here? Because the claim is made, well, look, if what we do is if we just flatten it and say, you know what's really true is all religions. They all have a unique insight, or they're all equally wrong. And you could call God Allah, you can call him Jesus, you can call him Krishna, it doesn't matter, as long as you have faith. That's what matters. Don't talk about what you have faith in, just have faith. That's all that matters. And yet there's a big problem with that, because it's saying, look, 
Exclusivity is wrong. So what we need is just to allow anything. And Tim Keller writes about this excellently in his book, The Reason for God. And he notes that how the charge against exclusive religion is actually making the same fault that exclusive religion has, or so they're saying. Well, let me explain it a little better. The belief is, look, all religions are equally valid, so what you need to do is just approach God however you want. Except that in and of itself is an exclusive claim. It's saying all doctrine is wrong except the doctrine that you can approach God however you want. That doctrine is true, and that doctrine needs to be affirmed by everyone. It in and of itself is making an exclusive claim. It's saying this belief has to be believed by everyone. It's making claims of exclusivity while it claims not to be. Keller writes, ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of other religions. So the proponents of the view do the very thing they forbid in others. And there's not just an issue with it logically. There's also an issue in it in how it works out. Keller goes on, he tells of this professor, Mark Lilly. He was in the University of Chicago, and one of his students came to faith in Christ. And Lilla, who was a skeptic of religion, says, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take to help him see, look, there's other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him that his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. The curious things about skepticism is that its adherents have so often been proselytizers. And you probably have experienced this as well. Those who most claim anything is valid are very dogmatic about anything is valid. They very much want you to believe that anything is valid. They are evangelists just for something else. They don't sit back and go, well, look, you just believe that. I'm staying here. No, no, you should. They evangelize you to their way of thinking. And so the question really needs to be not, are there exclusive claims? Because we all have them. But how can we live at peace with one another when we have different beliefs? And Christianity really has the best resources for how to do that. Because what is one of the foundational beliefs? It's that we offer nothing to God. So we don't get to come and proudly look down on other religions as though we're better. No, but by the grace of God go I. I come humbly. There's nothing that makes me better than you. As well, Christianity shows us that we're all made in God's image. So even you, an unbeliever, has wonderful ideas, can be a very moral person, can show me things that I would never see without you. And even me as a believer does not mean that I have it all together. I still struggle and sin. So there's an understanding and a common grace that we can show. And so really, I would argue that Christianity is the best path for peace with all these various religions. But all of this is driving from the point that Jesus is showing us that, look, true spirituality is not some amorphous belief. True spirituality has some content that must be believed. However, Jesus then warns that there are some other dangers we must avoid. This is next in verses 45 through 47 of chapter 20. Jesus is warning us of self-focus. Because then Jesus 
in the hearing of all the people, says to his disciples, he says, beware of the scribes. He's saying, watch out for them. Sometimes when I'm here during the week working and I pray, I will walk around rather than just sitting at my desk or sometimes I'll pray here. But when I walk around on the streets, I'm very careful because you may have noticed there's some one-way streets downtown and there's some two-way streets. And if you're down here long enough, you'll see people going the wrong way on one-way streets and you'll see people stopping where they shouldn't stop and doing all other sorts of craziness. So when I walk across the street, I look both ways, even if it's a one-way street, because you never know what people are going to do. I always have to be on my alert. Well, Jesus says there's something we have to be on alert for in our spirituality. And that is that not everything that claims to be spiritual actually is. There are some even leaders who are not what they should be. You only have to turn on the so-called Christian channel on television to realize how much you should be on your guard. Now here Jesus gives four ways they should be on the guard for these religious leaders. First, they like to walk around in long, ornate robes. Now the word for robes here is actually the word of the robe given to the prodigal son when he comes home. It's the word for the robes given to believers in Revelation 6. So it's not wrong to want a nice robe. The question is, why do you want it? Where are you getting it? And what do you think when you get it? Are you then proud and strut around? Well, hey, look at my robe. It's really nice. And I get this because I'm a man of, that's right, G-O-D, capital, God. I'm important. Is that why you want the robe? Here they're wanting it because it makes them proud. Well, second, they want prominence. When they're in the marketplace, they want people to greet them. Now, this is not how are you doing today. There is specific formal greeting that they were given. Beginning in 1844, Hail to the Chief became the official song that is played by the U.S. Marine Corps Band when the president takes the oath of office. You know, and in comes the president. He can have that played anytime he enters a room. And what is it saying? Here comes an important person. We're going to play a song. It's going to make everyone stop, and they're going to notice, Hail to the Chief. Well, they have their little Hail to the Scribe. Here comes the scribe. I'm super, super important. Look at me. I'm really, really righteous. And there they go. They come walking in. Hey, everyone notice, it's me. Hail to the scribe. And Jesus is saying, that's not why you should be spiritual. It's not so you can strut your stuff and let everyone focus on you. Well, third and fourth are kind of the same thing. They want place. Whether they're in the synagogue or whether they go to a meal, they want what we might say the 50-yard line seat. They want to be front and center. They want the best because I'm the scribe. And Jesus had already critiqued them. You may remember Luke 14. He told them, look, when you go to a feast, don't go try and get the best seat. Actually, take the worst seat, and then you'll be honored. Because it says you humble yourself that you're honored, not as you push yourself to the front. And all of these are really driving on the same theme of what was read earlier in Matthew 6. There it gave several examples do not practice your righteousness before men. He didn't say don't do righteous things. Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, why are you doing it? Are you doing it so others will notice you or so that God will notice you? Who is your spirituality for? And theirs is this a grab for prominence, position, and power. But Jesus goes on in verse 47, and he condemns them because they devour widows' houses and they pray 
hypocritically. We don't know exactly what devour widows' houses means, but most likely what happened is they had become a widow, and then the scribes would come and say, let us help you take care of your estate. Well, their help ended up putting a lot of money in the scribes' pockets. Rather than caring for the widow and orphan in distress, they're taking advantage of them at their most vulnerable time. And yet in spite of their abuses of their power, they pray long, holy prayers. Yet love for God is not revealed in smooth or fancy talk. Rather, as James, Jesus' brother, tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the most shocking things about the Bible is you read through it, is how many times God tells people, stop worshiping me. Malachi chapter 1. Oh, that there was someone among you who would shut the doors, like to the temple, that you would not kindle fire on my altar. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. You know, I haven't seen anyone at the front of Cowboy Stadium saying, we don't want you coming to our game today. Nope. No, we're cutting off fans. You fans are all hypocrites. You only cheer for us when we're winning. You boo when we're losing. Uh -uh. We're playing by ourselves. They don't care who comes as long as you cheer. They don't care if you're a hypocrite or if you're honest. But God tells people, stop worshiping me. He wants true spirituality, not fake spirituality. Well, why? Well, because as 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, for the Lord sees not as a man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at our hearts. In other words, God doesn't just look at what we do, but the motivation. Why are you doing that? You might see two different men helping an old lady into her house. Are they doing a good thing? Well, why are they doing it? One might be a kind neighbor just helping. Another might be a salesman who is getting her in to sell her something, who's just manipulating her. They're both doing the same thing, but their motive makes all of the difference. And here Jesus is saying, your motive matters. And thus, due to their hypocrisy and greed, Jesus is saying they will receive a greater judgment. Not every spiritual leader, not every pastor, not every priest, not every imam, deacon, whatever term you want to throw in, will enter God's kingdom. Some are in the ministry for what they can get out of it, not because they love God and people. And this is a warning for us that we must heed, that we must always guard not to put our faith in institutions, not to put our faith in churches or denominations or even a pastor. Keep your faith firmly rooted in God. Keep your faith where it should because institutions and people will let you down. Now, passages like this, they immediately make us think of the obvious. The pastor saying, God wants me to have a $50 million jet. And yes, that is horrible spiritual manipulation and abuse. And we should point out how that's wrong. There are religious leaders today who still prey on their people. However, we have to be cautious because Jesus was not just giving a condemnation. What was he doing? He was warning his disciples. In other words, he was saying, you could become just like this. You know, we're not being cautious if we don't realize how much we feel a slight surge 
of pleasure when someone says, that was a really insightful comment today in the study. <laughs> oh, I saw what you did online, how you went and helped at the soup kitchen. Like, love, share. Oh, wow. I really, I really love when people see how much I love God. We love to be loved. Now, sure, none of us are going around spiritually manipulating people so they can give us money, promising them, if you give me $10, it'll be seed money that will grow into a harvest. We're not doing that, but might we in other ways be doing this? Might there be things we do more that others will see us than that God will? We have a term for that today, virtue signaling. It's giving the impression that I care about this virtue when you just want others to think you care about it. You're saying the right things, holding to the right beliefs, being in the right places so that others in your group, whether that group is secular or Christian or Muslim, whatever it may be, doing the right things so that your group gives you the applause. Your group says they are a holy person. They're really doing what they should be doing. It's not just first century leaders who like being noted, who like being given positions of honor. Even today, we have to deal with these. Now, on the flip side, though, I always have to warn, you should check your motives. And yet, personally, when I peer down into why am I doing something, it's a big mix of good and bad. Sometimes I just go, I don't even know why I'm doing this. And so at some point we have to pray, God, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I know this is a good thing I should do, and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to pray that I'm not doing this to be applauded, and I'm not doing this to be noticed. But if I waited until I knew my motives were 100% pure, I would just be sitting in the corner of a room. Why did I go wash the dishes? I don't know. Maybe I had some sinister motive. We should check our motives and yet we should go forth knowing our hope is not in ourselves. As the saying goes, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at the cross. That is where our hope is. Not that we have pure motives. Our hope is that Christ always did. That we can rest in him. That sometimes we look back and go, man, I think I did that for the wrong reason. But I'm forgiven. Because Christ always had pure motives. So there's this healthy balance of we do need to test ourselves. We do need to ask, is this just self-interest? Or is this for God's glory? While at the same time realizing we will be stuck. We'll never move if we wait till we're 100% pure. And yet this is an area where Jesus strongly critiques us, even modern spirituality. Because what is kind of the core of most modern spirituality? It's about self-discovery about finding your inner light it's about self-affirmation it's all about self and yet jesus is saying true spirituality is other focused it's for god's glory and jesus even shows that next by giving us a positive example we see this lastly in verses one through four an example of a poor widow so chapter 21 one through four jesus is given a negative example watch out don't be like them but now he turns look here's a positive example so he's no longer condemning, he's commending. And what he does is he's watching people as they're bringing money into the temple. And there in the temple, they had 13 brass horn-shaped things they would put the money in. And we have to remember, when is this? This is the last week of Jesus' life. 
This is the week of the Passover. Jerusalem has swelled from a normal population of 25,000 to about 200,000, some estimate. It is a packed temple. And here come the rich, and oh boy, this is really embarrassing as my money hits this metal object, and it's making all this noise as I'm dumping in all my money. Oh boy, oh, this is really loud. That, uh, all this noise as I give my money. They're wanting people to notice. And yet there's one person who went by and tr- seemed like no one noticed. And yet the person who matters most did notice. Jesus noticed the widow. And what does he say? He notices she puts in two copper coins. What are these? Well, the, a copper coin was worth about 1% of their daily wage. So if you make $200 a day, that would be about $2. So she put in two. So she threw in $4. Now, when we look at our budget, when you look at your home budget, what does $4 do? Not much. And that's what she put in. She put in not much, except that's not what Jesus says. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 3, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. What is Jesus saying? Clearly she didn't put in more than all of them. She put in four bucks. Who cares about four bucks? Well, Jesus is not talking about the amount given, but how much of it from what they already had. She gave out of her lack. They gave out of their excess. She gave out of all she had to live on. The costliness of her gift far exceeded that of the rich. Her gift was greater not because of the amount, but the costliness of it. And the word, Jesus says, she gave her, actually is bios. You know, the study, biology. Biology is the study of living things. Jesus says she gave her life. In other words, she gave her livelihood. She gave it all. Now, it's important. Notice how many she gave. She gave two. What can you do with two? Well, you can keep one. If there's one, well, what can I do? I can't cut it in half. Then it destroys the whole value. But one she could have kept. She could have gone, you know, I really need this. And I got two. So this is great. One there and one for me. Even though she had a choice, she still gave it all. Now, she could have been like the religious leaders. I just gave it all. That's right, 100%, because I'm a really righteous person like that. But we don't get that impression. In fact, we're given the impression if Jesus didn't note her, he would have just gone on. No one would have ever noted a thing. You know, notice when Jesus wants to give us an example, he doesn't give us Billy Graham. So Billy Graham's a good example in many ways. He gives someone that no one would have noticed. Someone who is seemingly unimportant and you may look at your life you may look at your wallet you may look at your resources and your talents and you may say doesn't even matter this won't even budge the budget this won't even help at the end of the day it won't even seem like i did anything it doesn't matter what i do and jesus says that's not true anything you do in my name matters god notices and he says it matters. Now, part of the problem is we often forget that when we give to God, we're only giving back to him what's already his. 
You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Mother's Day, and what did a lot of children do? They went into their mom's kitchen and used mom's utensils and mom's ingredients and mom's oven, and they baked something, and then they brought it to her and said, look what we made for you. Now, I doubt any of the moms said, that was mine in the first place, you thief. They said, thank you. You gave me something. And that's what God does. We bring him our $4, and he doesn't go, I own everything. I don't need that. He doesn't look at our million dollars and go, he goes, it was all mine. But he goes, thank you. I'm so glad that you gave. That is such a wonderful gift. It was all his anyway. So it doesn't matter if we give four or 40 million. What is our heart is what Jesus is driving at. You know, God is not hurting for our funds. He hasn't set up a GoFundMe account. Your giving is not essential to him. It's essential for you. And God loves when we cheerfully give to him. The religious leaders thought, well, what matters is my position, my prominence, my power. And then I can maybe leverage those for God. And Jesus shows it's not the amount of your wealth. It's not the height of your position. It's not the level of your prominence. You can be the lowest, the poorest, the least talent. And God still is honored. Even our church. Oh, man, we're a small church. What what are we doing? Does it really even matter? Well, from our perspective, I'm not going to know. It doesn't really that matter. But from God's perspective, it does. It's not the size of your church, your family, your wallet. It's the amount, the level of your devotion that matters. And so following Jesus demands that we give him all, that we trust him with all. Now, clearly, this doesn't mean that each one of us needs to now go home and in our society pull it all together, write a check, and nope, we're down to zero. You know, in Acts, some people sold property and they brought it and they brought the money. And then Peter says, it was yours before you sold it and it was yours after. There's an idea of personal property. And God praises the ant, Proverbs 6, for saving. Yet the question is, are we willing to give it all? Are we willing to sacrifice? I think C.S. Lewis really hits this well. He says, I don't believe we can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving way too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. So what does that mean? Well, that means it's individual for each one of us. Because God knows all of our hearts. I don't know how much any of you should give, and I don't know how much anyone gives. But each of us needs to search, am I willing to give it all to God, even if my all is not that much? And thus Jesus is showing us, what is true spirituality? Well, he shows us true spirituality believes certain things. It's not just some amorphous idea. But true spirituality is not focused on me. It's focused on others. God is calling us not to store up our life, but as Paul says, pouring out our lives as a drink offering. That's really the life of Jesus. Why will one day every knee bow, like Psalm 110 says? Why will everyone be made his foothold? 
Well, because we're told in Philippians 2, he humbled himself to the point of death. His humiliation is what brought glorification, what brought honor. And Jesus is showing us that, too, is what true spirituality is. It's not about lifting ourselves up. It's about laying ourselves down for God's glory and for others. And so don't buy the lies of modern spirituality and don't buy the lies of false religion. We need to realize Jesus critiques both. Jesus here is condemning the religious leaders. And yet he didn't abandon religion. Because where is he at? He's at the temple. He's commending giving to it. He is teaching from the scriptures. However, neither does Jesus say religion. Check. That's good. If it's religious, I affirm it. No, he's very clear. There is inconsistency. There is hypocrisy. There is self-righteousness in much that claims to be mine. And he is very clear. He hates it. And we should too. And so Jesus is calling us to be molded, not into the image of what the world tells us what spirituality is, not what we might think spirituality is, but what he calls us to live like as spiritual beings, that we might joyfully, that we might sacrificially live for God's glory and praise, not to be seen for others. This is well illustrated in a story Tim Keller tells, and I've told it before, but I think it bears repeating, and that is, there was this man who was in a kingdom, and he was rather poor. All he had was his little house and a little garden, and yet he always took care of it. And one year, he grew this really beautiful, magnificent carrot, and he thought, you know what? My king has always been so good to me, so he went, and he came to the king, and he said, king, I've been growing carrots for years, and this is the very best I've ever grown, and you've been so kind and good. I want to give it to you, and the king realized what was happening, and as, as he saw the gardener leaving he said stop i know who you are i know you have a garden next to one of my fields and i can't believe you gave me your most valued possession and i'm going to honor you because you gave your best you are now going to get to oversee that field next to yours it'll be yours well sitting there in the throne room was one of his officials who thought oh so he went home and the next day he comes marching in this beautiful black stallion he says oh king i love you and you're so wonderful and because i love you i brought you my most beautiful black stallion and the king said okay thank you and had some men take it out and the official kind of stood there waiting and the king realizing knowing what was already happening says well you're wondering why you didn't get such a great gift and we said the thing is the gardener gave me the carrot you gave yourself the horse you know is our worship of god is our spirituality for god or is it some backhanded for me why do we worship god what is our spirituality about may it be for the glory of god may it be out of love for who he is may we delight in him let's pray oh lord Forgive us. Each of us, if we're honest, knows that there is that pride, that selfishness that wells up, and yet we are so grateful that in your love you made a way for us to be forgiven, that we might, even in our imperfections, worship you. And so now we come again at the foot of your Son's cross, knowing that in him we are restored, made holy and perfect. May we enjoy 
go out and serve you this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.